Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, coming to you today uh, from lovely Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, where I find myself uh, coming to enjoy the weekend that just passed. Uh, see a bunch of my buddies, uh, my good buddy Mikey, my big uh, deadhead buddy who took me to my first show, going to be seeing him, uh, our good friend Andy Greenberg, who's always been a big fan of the show and a big supporter of us is here with her husband, the mysterious Alex, who one day we still will get on our show and tap into his wealth of knowledge about uh, the Grateful Dead and all things music related. My wife and I drove up with our good friend Harold, had a great time, and uh, tomorrow night, uh, those of us that are inclined are going to go outside and brave the brisk fall weather to see uh, the Michigan Wolverines take on the Minnesota Golden Gophers. And even though we don't know the score yet, by the time you're listening to this, you do know the score or you could know the score if you were interested. And I'm sure most of you aren't, but that's OK, because I am. So I'll be talking about it next week. Um, but let's dive right in. We got a great, great show today. We got the Grateful Dead from October 9th, 1989. And this is a special show. We, we've talked about this show before, and we've played bits and pieces of this show on the day before, the 8th and the 9th, because it's the two nights when the Grateful Dead played at the Hampton Coliseum in Hampton, Virginia, uh, under the title of formerly known as the Warlocks. And, of course, the Warlocks uh, was the name of the band uh, the Grateful Dead played under uh, before they switched over to the Grateful Dead in or around 1965, early 1966. I don't remember exactly when. I should, but I don't. And um, so the, the, throwing the name Warlocks in there, this was a, this was a, a, a two-off show. Uh, they had just played a, a tour that had just, I think, ended, and uh, they made a very quick announcement. It was uh, less than 30 days from announcement to show. Everybody had a scramble. When they saw the Warlocks, people knew they couldn't miss it, and they didn't. And it was a great, great show. And on October 9th, 1989, uh, 34 years ago today, here's how it all began. Good smoking around midnight. You shoot me a look that says, let's go. Yes, and it be. But like running a red light. There ain't no point looking behind us. No, no, still I feel like a stranger. Like a Stranger, 1979, Go to Heaven, um, was a, from that point on, became a regular part of the uh, Grateful Dead repertoire, more or less kind of settling in to a second set uh, closer, uh, um, would come up from time to time in various locations, but certainly uh, 
there and would also be played a lot as a show opener, actually, probably more as an opener than anything else. So I'll strike that last statement and go with this statement, which sounds a lot better that uh, um, it, it could open sometimes with Franklin's Tower, uh, with a number of other songs, but uh, sometimes just straight on its own and a uh, really good song. When it was released, they also released it as a single um, and uh it uh, did okay there too, but it was on the Go to Heaven album from 1979. And uh, Feel Like a Stranger is a, a fun way to open a show, a little bit of energy. Uh, Bobby gets going, so you know he's ready and, and having a good time. Uh, but people came to this show expecting to see big, big things, uh, given the way that the dead had uh, advertised it. So although a Great Feels Like a Stranger is a great tune and, and uh, typically very much enjoyed, uh by deadheads when we're seeing a show um it was also not unusual to see a show open with feel like a stranger so at this point people are just settling in and they're thinking okay well here we go um you know not too bad so far for a first set let's see where this takes us and uh you know we can kind of go from there so uh that's fine let's see where it takes us and uh a few minutes later in the first set uh the fans got to hear this Brent Midland in here and uh, you know so here's what's fun about all of this people are sitting there we're anticipating a big show big night famous location for the Grateful Dead on the East Coast uh, they're 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 all but you know promising uh, that special treats are going to be pulled out of the closet and uh, you know so we find ourselves kind of going through a first set here uh, we heard feels like a stranger uh, they played built to last little red rooster ramble on rose we can run Jack Rose stuck inside of Mobile, Row Jimmy, and then a set closer. The music never stopped. Now, right there, that's not a bad first set for the Grateful Dead. That's nine tunes. And uh, by any measure, uh, by 1989, uh, that's a very, very solid first set. And they were really going strong. Now, you know, again, being in Hampton Coliseum, Fish fans love it. Deadheads love it. Um, a lot of bands have gone to uh, Coliseum, Hampton Coliseum, uh, and, and really made a mark on it there. Um, and it's just one of those great kind of places. It's in a town that's, 
just big enough to be able to accommodate the crowds that come in, but not too big. You got your waffle houses and your 7-Elevens all over the place. You're not too far off the beach. And it was always a lot of fun. We always enjoyed going there. Uh, by 1989, I was not really getting out there anymore, uh, you know, growing up and going to work and getting married and, you know, thinking about kids and everything. But I, I did not make it out there for these shows, unfortunately, uh, because uh, I would have gone just knowing that they were playing in Hampton Coliseum. Uh, but certainly as the Warlocks, uh, we'd want to be there. But, you know, even with all of this, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of keeping the fans, you know, just at arm's length and they're, they're, they're playing it straight. Right. So, you know, we've got Bobby coming in. We got with newer tunes, we've got Brent coming in. Uh, uh, we can run is off of built to last from 1989. And uh, you know, just his, his ever growing contributions to the band and to their, their song selections really going in, in, in such a wonderful direction with the band and tragic because as we know, within a year or so, uh, by uh, July of 1990, uh, the Grateful Dead have lost Brent, and Brent, uh, unfortunately, has lost his life with an overdose. But at this point, man, he's going strong, and he plays that tune really strong. And obviously, they're all in good spirits. So, you know, whatever they have planned, whatever's going down, whatever's going to happen, uh, you know, we'll find out about it as we get there and uh, and, and see what they do. So, you know, it, it, it just makes it fun to go see them in this respect, right? Because you never really know. Everybody's always kind of going in hoping for one of those special shows. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Uh, but on a night like this, you can kind of feel the energy in the air and everybody's just anticipating, anticipating. And uh, we'll let everybody on this side anticipate for a few minutes as well um, and talk about some other things really fast. First of all, uh, this coming weekend, Fish will be in Chicago. And I could not be happier about that, um, uh, you know, with the inability to see the dead or even dead and co. Um, Phil not touring nearly as much anymore. Uh, it's nice to know there's always Fish. And Fish has become a band that I really enjoy seeing. Uh, they will really rock it out for a good period of time. Good crowd, good people. Uh, got some good seats to see them in the United Center in Chicago. Uh, not necessarily the best venue to see rock and roll, but not the worst. And, uh, you know, it's indoors, it's clean. And I got good seats through the, for the, through the fish mail order or, or uh, email order, however they do it now. Uh, so I'm a happy guy. I'll be going all three nights. My brother's going to join me one night. My wife will go with me one night. If she has a good time, she may go a second night. Um, but really looking forward to getting out there and seeing them and getting some live music. And so um, I'd like to be able to tell you that on next week's show, uh, we'll be talking about it. But unfortunately, uh, I will be taping again next week's show just before I go to see the fish show. So you're going to have to wait a week after that. But I promise uh, once I have seen them, uh, we will dive into it big and strong and uh, and talk about them and talk about everything that uh, uh, they did at the shows here. Um, they got a lot going on. They've got their New Year's shows announced. They got their big fish festival coming up towards the end of next summer in August. So a lot going on with fish for people uh, who are inclined to focus their energy and attention on that band, which I highly approve of and think is a great thing to do. There's always lots of fish, and thank God. So we'll go out, we'll have a fun time, and uh, be dancing around seeing them uh, at the uh, United Center, the house that Michael Jordan built, as we like to refer to it here in Chicago. So there's a lot going on in the marijuana world, and uh, we're going to dive in right now. So, uh, Dan, anytime you're ready. Call my friends and tell them. There's a party, come on by. Now just roll me up and smoke me when I die. You're the best, man. Love that stuff. Um, it's, it's good. It gets Dan involved in the whole marijuana side of stuff. And, you know, we really enjoy it and have a good time with him. So nicely done. 
there's really kind of a lot going on, as there always seems to be in the marijuana world. And, you know, I was flipping around and looking at some stories today on both MJ Biz and Marijuana Moment, which are this show's two go-to sources for our marijuana news and uh, two news sources that I would strongly recommend. And I'd recommend you go to both of them, because uh, while they will both have some of the same stories, uh, they will also each cover stories uh, that the other one isn't covering or hasn't picked up on yet. And um, if you want to know what's going on in the marijuana world, uh, that's a great way to do it or listen to this show each week. And I'll be happy to update you as well. One of the issues that we've talked about going on with marijuana and uh, something that certainly has to be uh, ultimately addressed and considered is the idea that in order to have a FOIDA card, a firearms owner identification card, which allows you to carry a gun in this country, you cannot be engaged in uh, the violation of any laws, including Schedule One and Schedule Two controlled substances. And since marijuana remains a Schedule One controlled substance, notwithstanding uh, the DEA and Health and Human Services and everybody apparently for the last 20 years really knowing and understanding that marijuana doesn't belong on any schedules uh, and shouldn't be treated any differently um, than alcohol or uh, you know uh, any other substances like that uh, that are potentially intoxicating but are otherwise safe and, 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 and harmless. And uh, even more so, as we've talked about week after week, uh, more and more medical uh, treatments are coming out, more and more studies are coming out verifying earlier reports on, on medical treatments. Um, and it's just such a positive thing to see all of that. Uh, but yet we still have some issues floating around. And one of them is this idea of the gun ban. And it's, it's very disconcerting and it's very upsetting because it, the fact that people want to be able to go out and smoke marijuana uh, should not automatically disqualify them from owning a handgun. Now, I'm going to confess to anybody, I'm pretty much an anti-any kind of gun guy because I don't see the value, and I do see the huge, ridiculous numbers of deaths. Uh, gun violence just became the number one uh, cause of uh, teenage death in this country. Uh, that's something we don't need. If it were marijuana, everybody would be screaming to get marijuana off of the uh, off of the laws and make it illegal again and, and lock people up forever. But it's guns, and they don't. So uh, I, I see a gun problem in this country, but I've always taken the position uh, that guns and marijuana are two separate issues. And when you when you legalize something, like we legalize alcohol, we don't say anybody who drinks alcohol can't have a gun, although I would be willing to bet that people who go out and get drunk are far more likely uh, to engage in gunfire than people who have smoked marijuana and have gotten stoned, just like with driving and all the studies that show that drivers who are inebriated after drinking alcohol are far more dangerous than drivers uh, who uh, have gotten high from smoking or edibles or whatever form of marijuana they take. And yet, once again, you know, marijuana gets, oh, no, no, this is the bad one and this is the one we're going to punish. So um, we've seen a number of different groups in a number of different states trying to uh, separate these two issues and allow people uh, to be medical marijuana patients or to have mar medical marijuana operating licenses for either dispensaries or cultivation and not find that they're automatically disqualified uh, simply because they own a firearm, which at least in this point in time is certainly their constitutional right. And even though I'm against it, I will always recognize a constitutional right when it's been uh, enunciated. Again, you know, we can, we can agree to disagree on whether it was properly enunciated, uh, but until somebody goes in and challenges it again with a better argument, and I do believe there are better arguments out there, um, it is legal. So uh, if, if it's okay to have a gun and if it's okay to smoke marijuana, 
I don't know why it's not okay to do both, but the Justice Department found it necessary to go in and defend its gun ban for medical marijuana patients in oral argument before a, a, federal, appears, a federal appeals court, which heard arguments uh, last week in a case concerning the constitutionality of the federal ban keeping medical marijuana patients from purchasing or possessing firearms, the three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit listened and asked questions as attorneys for Florida medical cannabis patients in the Justice Department argue their side of the case, uh, uh, which had been fleshed out in multiple briefings, uh, you know, for over uh, for over a year now. So Will Hall, who is representing the plaintiff, said in his opening remarks that there are two main considerations at hand uh, that demonstrate the unconstitutionality of the federal ban. Multiple courts outside of the 11th Circuit have already determined that prohibition is unconstitutional. So regardless of the legality of cannabis use, precedent holds that simply committing a crime on its own does not inherently exclude someone from their Second Amendment rights. The second is that the Supreme Court has created a new threshold for gun restrictions that renders them unconstitutional if there is not a historical analog consistent with the amendment's original 1791 ratification. Banning people who use medical cannabis is inconsistent with that historical context, the attorney contended. Now, the Justice Department attorney came back and recognized that there were not widespread illegal drugs at the founding. That's not something that happens until the turn of the 20th century. But he argued that early laws restricting gun rights over drunkenness and mental illness represent historical analogs that are consistent with the purpose and intent of the federal gun ban for people who consume cannabis regularly. Uh, in a prior briefing, they said it was undisputed that the conduct uh, that plaintiffs wish to engage in is a violation of federal law and obviously has been for 50 years. I think it's also significant that we're talking about a violation, not just of the law, but a violation that involves the use of intoxicating substances. It's undisputed here that those substances involve the impairment of cognition, judgment, and other skills that are essential to the safe handling of firearms. I would concede uh, that if somebody's going to be handling a firearm, they're better off uh, Un, uh, not toxicated. But if it's a question of we live in a society where we know people are going to be toxicated, uh, I think you have a much stronger argument uh, drawing that connection that they're trying to make here with alcohol uh, far more than with marijuana for the reasons that we always all go around talking about. Um, it, it, it's just a very complex issue. But for me, I, I don't see where uh, it helps the marijuana community or the marijuana side of the argument at all to try to link the two issues. And even from a government perspective, I don't think it really makes sense to try to link the two issues uh, because we all know that marijuana is legal now in, in the states that have approved it, um, which are growing and growing in number. Uh, we all know that marijuana is a remarkably safe product to consume. We all know that marijuana has been shown to have tremendous medical value. We all know that uh, in states with legal marijuana, teenage smoking goes down. We know that uh, numbers for American citizens who approve of uh, legal marijuana and who have used marijuana at least once in their lifetime are at all-time highs. And so, you know, we're, we're just at a point in time where we kind of have to allow marijuana to proceed on its own. And that's really what should be going on here. Marijuana is its own substance. It's its own issue. Uh, and clearly, uh, it has made its way into society. And to try to go back and once again link it uh, with guns or try to emphasize that linkage for purposes of shrinking or reducing uh, the medical marijuana market and, and the legal cannabis community, to me, uh, that seems un-American. That seems something that uh, just shouldn't be done. And I'd like to see the NRA and other gun groups taking a very strong stand on this issue, uh, like they tend to do on any issue involving gun rights other than once a black person involved. 
um, you know, and some of those moments just don't work out very well for them. And this would seem to me uh, to be a great moment for the NRA to come out and say, yeah, this is ridiculous. Uh, we don't approve of this law. Marijuana uh, consumers are citizens too, and they have just as much right to, to carry a gun as anybody else. Um, unfortunately, I don't see them doing that. And so, you know, that's a whole other issue problematically on the uh, on the gun side. But at the end of the day, I think that we all have to kind of move on beyond this issue and not really let us drag it down into an argument that nobody's ever going to be satisfied with. It really raises up a lot of uh, uh, emotional feelings in people. And, you know, when, when, when guns get interjected into the argument, uh, it, you know, we, we very, very quickly draw uh, political lines and, and societal lines in terms of uh, what we as individuals all believe is the proper place for any kind of a gun in society today. And, you know, for as many of us that, that oppose it, there are just as many uh, that approve it and, and wouldn't have it any other way. And that's great. And, and neither the, the purpose of this show or my life at the moment is to be arguing that issue. So I say, let's not make it an issue of marijuana. Uh, let's keep it separate. And the federal government, you know, once again, has to stop the hypocrisy. That is all of these uh, ridiculous rules that they come up with. Because as we've talked about recently, the government itself has conducted studies of marijuana. The government itself... Um, is aware of the medical benefits of marijuana. Uh, many government agencies, uh, the DEA, the Health and Human Services, uh, who have been doing all this research into marijuana and who uh, suggested it's time to reschedule it, even though we say it's time to deschedule it. And yeah, and here's another perfect example, right? Because we say when it's rescheduling, it's still illegal. And if it's still illegal, then you can still have uh, groups like the Justice Department making this kind of an argument. If we make marijuana legal and, and we, we deschedule it altogether, this is no longer an issue. There's no argument to be made here because we no longer have to worry about somebody uh, being uh, involved in illegal conduct uh, while possessing marijuana. So therefore, the, uh, the qualifying condition for all of that other stuff never comes into play um, because we're not engaged in illegal uh, activity. And, you know, I, I don't want to see certain groups uh, coming forward and saying, well, look, we don't want uh, marijuana legalized on the federal level and we don't really want it legalized at all. In fact, what we want to be able to do is to keep punishing people like this because they've chosen to exercise what should be, you know, as much of a constitutional right uh, to ingest and, and appreciate a substance as any other substances out there that we use. And, uh, you know, we like to think that we're heading towards that goal. Many of us think we're not getting there nearly fast enough. And this is an issue uh, that whether you believe in guns or don't believe in guns makes it very easy to illustrate the great divide that still exists out there um, between a federal government uh, that's going to get off its hypocrisy high horse and uh, say, yes, people like to smoke weed. We get that. Uh, we recognize that it does have societal value. It does have medicinal value. We're going to take it off the schedules. We're going to make it available uh, for everyone 21 years of age or older per state rules in which it's grown or sold, and they can decide how to do it. There's no constitutional right to marijuana, uh, but you don't have to make it illegal because of the feds because we say it's legal, just like the hemp bill in 2018. Uh, this is something that just needs to get done already. Uh, then if that happens, we don't have to worry about the Safe Banking Act once again blowing up in the Senate and the House because when it's legal, the banks will no longer have to worry about any of these issues in terms of doing business with the industry. So, you know, it, it, it's really time, I think, to move forward and to move past all of this and to really try and find a way that allows people uh, with multiple legal rights 
to enjoy uh, constitutional rights to enjoy all those rights. Uh, you know, one might say in an entourage effect, uh, you know, all of them at the same time working together. Uh, and if the government wants to go through and try and pick off one or two of them at a time, uh, that's certainly their business. But don't try and backdoor us on cannabis by saying that if you have a gun license uh, and you have possessions of firearms and things like that, uh, that that disqualifies you from being a medical patient or disqualifies you from owning a, uh, a dispensary or cultivation center, because that's trying to have it two ways. And that just doesn't cut it. Um, and it seems to me and it seems to everyone, I would like to think that the far easier way is just to say, yes, it's legal. Uh, we're going to judge you on your ability to have a gun on the same standards we judge everybody else and their abilities in terms of what we think you can and cannot do. And quite frankly, uh, if you live in this country today and you can't qualify for a gun license and you're either dead or there's something really, really wrong with you. Uh, because it seems like anybody anywhere can get their gun licenses. So uh, l let's move past this issue, I think, and let's find a way, um, you know, once again, to take everybody's uh, positions into account. And uh, ultimately, that's just going to be a lot better for everyone. But part and parcel with that is uh, another really interesting story. Uh, and, and this one is, is a good story. And this one I like to see because uh, it's very positive in terms of recognizing uh, the medical efficacy of marijuana, uh, which again is one of the key factors in getting it off of Schedule 1. The American Nurses Association has officially recognized cannabis as a form formal specialty practice area. Now, this is significant. Uh, it's a professional organization, represents more than 5 million nurses in the U.S., and it's announced its formal recognition of cannabis as a nursing specialty practice area. And so, you know, it, it, this is people, you know, absolutely recognizing a, 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 uh, um, a, 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 a traditional, uh, well-thought-of, mainstream medical group in this country, uh, nurses who uh, many would say are really the ones on the front line of, of medical care and the ones, uh, you know, who ultimately do all the dirty work and, uh, you know, make things happen after the doctor kind of comes in and sees the patient and waves his or her magic wand over their heads. Uh, you know, it's the nurses who are doing the, uh, the down and dirty work uh, kind of, you know, behind the scenes, if you will, uh, out of the spotlight. And yet here they are coming forward and saying uh, that they believe uh, that cannabis plays a, an important role in providing patients with education and guidance on incorporating marijuana into treatment. Uh, they say this recognition highlights the essential role and special contribution of cannabis nurses to the healthcare system and promotes enhanced integration of cannabis therapies for healthcare consumers across diverse healthcare settings. The group bills itself as the sole reviewing body of specialty nursing scope of practice and standards of practice. And, and I think that this is true. And I've, I've talked with nurses before and, uh, you know, nurses often point out that with just about any other type of medicine that's out there that you would either get from a doctor or, you know, maybe even in, in you know, over the counter situation, um, it's still nurses who do the overwhelming majority of communication with patients about how to take their meds. The doctor prescribes the meds. You go to the pharmacy, you pick it up, you bring it home. You're not sure what to do. You call the doctor's office. The nurse calls you, not the doctor. The nurse calls you. And I'm not being critical of the doctors when I say that. I'm just saying that's what they do. The nurses call you back and the nurses say, oh yeah, Mr. Michigan, you want to make sure you take two every evening, 20 minutes after you've eaten food or, you know, 
whatever the case may be, um, you know, and who can explain to you why you're taking what you're taking and what taking a little too much or taking a little too little might do to you and why it's important, you know, to maintain uh, the prescription amounts on a you know constant regular basis. And, and many of them argue, and I think they've got a very strong point that uh, there should be a, a, a specialty practice area for nurses and cannabis so that once you've gone to your dispensary, um, because here we're kind of one step removed, right? We don't really have a doctor formally writing us a prescription. We have a doctor writing us a recommendation to get us into the program. And the way I think most doctors view it is I'm signing off on this and I'm just saying to the state that uh, you have the condition that is needed uh, to qualify to be a medical patient in this state. Um, but I'm not saying that I believe in medical marijuana uh, as a recognized treatment option or as a reliable treatment option or as a safe treatment option or you know how much of it to smoke and when to smoke and where to smoke. And, you know, so what we have is a large number of people who go out there and they buy their marijuana and they don't know what to do with it. And you can ask people in the medical dispensaries, and there are some medical dispensaries that are out there uh, you know, with employees who I believe um, have the knowledge and the ability uh, to have conversations with potential medical users and answer those kind of questions. You know, if I have nausea, what's better? If I'm dizzy, what's better? If I'm having trouble sleeping, what's better? If I don't have an appetite, what's better? Um, and sometimes these these bud tenders, if you will, know what they're talking about, but a lot of times they don't. Um, and again, that's not to challenge them and and to be uh, uh, critical of them. You know, they're coming out and and doing the best job they can. And the real question is, what are they being asked to do, and what type of opinions are they being asked to give? And I think that's where we get to the point where we say, you know, somebody who uh, can sit down and can learn a lot about marijuana and can figure out, um, you know, how marijuana. Uh, can be used or this or that or whatever, um, maybe should be somebody who has a bit of familiarity with the various uh, systems in our bodies and how they work with one another and how they interact with one another and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, can really be able to give you, hopefully, uh, if, if they're qualified in a specialty area, they've, they've done the practice and they've done the work uh, to get the knowledge that they need to have in order to be able to do that. Um, and so presumably you would think that they're they really are a better source for people to be able to go to as opposed to your standard bud tender. And I'm willing to bet that most bud tenders would be thrilled to have somebody in their dispensary or somebody in the neighborhood that they could refer people to uh, with respect to uh, what's the best way to consume this cannabis and, you know, in what kind of doses and on what kind of a basis and uh, any of that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think that it, it's great to do it, but to get people to want to go into these industries, you have to incentivize them and creating a recognized specialty area of practice, I think, is is a great way to incentivize a group of people uh, to really be willing to commit and spend more time in that area. And, um, you know, uh, good for the American Nurses Association. You know, again, a fairly mainstream uh, medical group and certainly not one uh, that has a strong history of, uh, you know, uh, pushing uh, cannabis medical or legal. Um, but yet, you know, they, they're, they're looking at the tea leaves and they're recognizing uh, that given what's going on here, uh, there is a growing need for this type of specialty medical treatment that can, people can go to that's, you know, maybe not as expensive or as formalistic as medical treatment with a with an MD or a uh, another, you know, level healthcare provider like that. But it is somebody who's going to know more uh, than your regular 
butt tender and, you know, hopefully somebody who can give you a little bit of confidence and, uh, you know, a little bit of information so you can walk into a dispensary uh, to make a purchase and feel, not feel uncomfortable, feel like, you know, I've got a, p- a pretty good grip on this, at least a grip good enough that I can go up and I can ask questions now. And, you know, if I don't sound quite right, you know, the guy behind the counter may have a little chuckle at my expense, uh, but it won't be a full blown, you know, slap in his side and pointing his finger at me and, you know, and that kind of thing. And I think that that's important for people to have that kind of confidence and to have that kind of understanding of what it is they're buying and, and what the purpose of buying it is and how is it going to, how is it going to work and how would it be used? And so I'm all for uh, a specialty area of practice uh, for nurses, for doctors, for any type of healthcare professional up or down the line. I think it's just a, a very, very important thing. And, and, and that's the way we're ultimately as a society going to learn about what the capabilities of these products are, you know, what the, what the true capabilities of them are. And as, as healthcare professionals experiment, uh, you know, along lines of use that they've been studying and that they have some background knowledge on when you can actually have people who are willing to try it for a month or two or three, and you can measure, uh, whatever, whatever, uh, readouts you're looking for from the human body across a period of time, uh, to get an idea of what the cannabis is doing to that person's system, uh, you know, those are all available for you to do anyway. So um, it's a positive thing in my book. Anytime, uh, you know, a group is traditional and some might even say conservative as the American Nurses Association uh, to be uh, in essence, providing a tacit recognition uh, that cannabis is here to stay. That cannabis does have uh, good potential uh, medical benefits. Uh, and so therefore it's important uh, enough for them to be able to recognize this type of um, specialty and, uh, uh, and and let people run with it. So these are all things that we're, we're going to want to keep following over time and, and see what happens with them and see how they grow. And, uh, and we will. But the other thing I think is, I, you know, as I think about it, that's really important to have a, a, a nursing area of of specialty practices, I think it sends a message to patients as a whole, right? A lot of times patients go in to see a doctor. I had to go in the other day, I was getting my COVID shot and they want me to fill out all these forms. I said, do you use alcohol? No. Uh, Do you smoke? And I always have to stop and look at it because I know that they're asking about tobacco. I don't smoke tobacco, but I do smoke marijuana. And so, you know, you're never quite sure you know, exactly what they're looking for. And, you know, you're kind of stuck on this, on this fence, which is on the one hand, you know, anytime you're talking to a doctor, you want to be as, as honest and straightforward with that doctor as you can so that the doctor is able to fully understand what your condition is and really come up uh, with the best cure or solution or practice treatment or whatever it might be uh, to help you with your ailment. And if you withhold symptoms or other uh, information upon which uh, a healthcare professional would rely, then, you know, you're, you're, you're hampering the ability of the healthcare professional to, you know, accurately diagnose what your situation is and to come up with a, a, a workable and, and, and smart healthcare plan. So, but other people say, yeah, but I, you know, I don't want to talk about it. It makes me uncomfortable. You know, what if, what if they put it in their report and then the insurance companies see it and, uh, you know, what if any of like that? And, and, and there's just a, uh, you know, a general reluctance, I think, for people to just come right out and, and, and say how they feel. But, you know, when you again, when you see that a group like the American Nurses Association has taken the time to set up this its own uh, specialty area of practice in, in legal cannabis, uh, you know, I hope that that will give. Uh, cannabis users who are seeking medical treatment, whether it's medical treatment based on the fact that they they would like to stop smoking marijuana so much, or whether it's, you know, inquiring about information on a health condition uh, for which marijuana may or may not 
uh, provide practical solutions or anything across the board. When you see that there's a, a, a nursing group, a subset of a nursing group, uh, you know, again, from one of the more highly respected and well-established medical groups in this country, I, I think that that's the type of positive pushback that the industry really needs to counteract so much of the uh, negative attention that it still seems to get from many groups, especially when you try to make the argument that there is medical efficacy and everybody kind of laughs and says, yeah, 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 whatever makes you sleep at night. We know you just want to get high kind of thing. And, you know, sure, of course, we all just want to get high, but that doesn't mean we can't stop and look at this and really recognize uh, the benefits of what we should be able to do and, you know, wanting as much as possible, uh, you know, to kind of keep the hypocrisies out of the way. And when groups like the American Nurses Association join in on, on our side, on the good side, uh, you know, then I think that it really does definitely at that point just make things a little bit better for all the rest of us. So thank you to the American Nurses Association um, for doing your thing. Let's head back to 10989. When I was uh, talking to my, some of my friends up here earlier today, uh, my friend Harold was particularly interested and in, um, very, very impressed with 10989, although he couldn't quite explain why. And uh, eventually we flushed out of him, of course, that he has no idea what 10989 is, but he wanted to sound hip and be part of the show. And Harold used to go dead shows with us all the time, um, but he kind of bailed on the whole Jerry is God thing. And, you know, 50 years later, we're still listening to their shows. So God bless. We all had fun when we went to the shows together. Um, uh, you know, it's not necessarily for everybody all the time, uh, but if you walk away from the show today knowing that 10989 is one of those dates in Grateful Dead history uh, that you always want to be able to talk about and, and pull out of your back pocket. So, yeah, those Warlock shows up in Hampton, those were great. So many great breakouts. What a, what a great couple of nights. Some of you out there who may not still be familiar with the show say, what great breakouts? You've been teasing great breakouts. You keep suggesting there's going to be great breakouts. They call themselves the Warlocks, and we anticipate great breakouts. But so far, we've heard feels like a stranger. Uh, we can run, uh, but we really haven't heard uh, too much more than that that suggests we're having breakouts. Well, okay, fine. Screw it already. Um, you know, we're, we're getting ready now to, to kind of come forward with the uh, – with the goods that have been promised all day, because after that really, really killer first set, the boys come out in the second set and open with a tremendous playing in the band. And, you know, quite frankly, I think for, for many of us, that right there might've been a very, very good hint at where things were going because playing in the band is the modern day. And when I say modern day, I certainly refer to 1989 as modern day, grateful dead, not modern day in terms of where we are today. Um, but modern day in, in, in the world of the grateful dead, uh, playing in the band was always a jam jumping off tune. It has its lyrics up front. Bobby really gets into it and sings it, but then they jam and it becomes a free form jam. And many, many times uh, it becomes the launching pad uh, for a very great series of uh, uh, tunes that are about to come at us. And that's what happens here because they immediately, uh, not immediately, but as they, as they begin to slow down on the playing, they slide over into Uncle John's band. Again, another uh, Grateful Dead standard classic uh, from uh, the 1970-71 period. Um, and, you know, if it were only played once every 10 or 15 years or whatever, people would go crazy over that song too because it's that good of a song. But, uh, you know, for reasons we can never always understand, this is a tune that has always been part of the Dead's repertoire. And, and I'm sure part of it has to do with the fact that it's such a positive message song. And, uh, you know, Jerry really seems to enjoy it a lot. Bobby always seems to enjoy it a lot. Even though none of them can ever get the, word, the words right on it, uh, it's still a fun song. And, um, 
and, and one that we love to hear. So uh, to open up a second set with the plans, Uncle John's back into a play and reprise, already you've got my attention. And I think uh, that most of the deadheads who were there that night uh, similarly were, 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 were taking note of what was going on and uh, were more than likely, you know, digging themselves in and get ready for uh, whatever rush might going to come next. And it did not take long because within a, uh, literally out of the play and reprise. So uh, making it more or less the fourth song of the uh, second set, uh, all the deadheads got what they came to Hampton to hear. Yeah, so it's their dark star. So, of course, that's what everybody wanted to hear. And it's a great dark star. They played all the way through. It's about a 19-minute version. Uh, very, very excellent. Uh, as Rob and I have talked about on other shows, uh, this was the start of a little bit of a run of dark star for the dead. They pulled it out after uh, a number of years. And... Um, they then played it again on October 26th, so just a bit, a little bit later this month in Miami, uh, which I always found to be one of my favorite dark stars of this uh, uh, more recent vintage of, of, of the tune played by the band. But it's just great to hear Jerry doing it. And, you know, his voice is strong and he's, he's, he's cranking through the lyrics and uh, there's just sorts of all, you know, behind, behind the scenes sounds that are coming out. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess it's, the answer is you can never really quite recreate the whole acid trip scene and the the, the uh, primal dead era that that kind of culminated um, with the live dead album and and uh, the end of the acid test in the late 1960s, uh, just before they kind of spun off into their Americana, and um, Dark Star was such an important part of that period for them, and it played such a, an outsized prominent role in so many of their concerts and so many of their shows would be judged on the dark star and uh, you know their shows that are remembered just because of their dark star um, and deadheads want to hear that kind of stuff deadheads are students of history and they know all the stuff that went down before and you know everybody's going to these shows every night because this is what they're looking to catch they're looking to catch a night when the grateful dead you know throws it all down and just says this is who we are at our core and this is what we're going to bring to you and uh it, it it's beautiful music and uh it, it's their music right as, as we as we go on now you know all these other bands whether it's Phil and friends um even with dead and co right i mean have all these other musicians who are now on the stage with 
Bobby or Phil or any combination of them. And these groups will, you know, go off and play Dark Star and they'll play St. Stephen and sometimes they'll even play the 11. Um, but it's it's never the same. It's not the same as, you know, your 1960s with Tom Constantin on the electric keyboard, Pigpen in there doing his thing, um, Bobby and Jerry, uh, uh, the drummers, Phil, just up there making noise for the sheer love of making noise and using Darkstar uh, as a vehicle to do all of that. And, um, you know, they, they do it great. So we have a Darkstar, and every, now everybody's happy. Uh, into a drums, uh, into the space, and, you know, maybe the boys forgot where they were, forgot what year it was, but they're not done pulling out the surprises. Great, great tune, Death Don't Have No Mercy, written by the Reverend Gary Davis off of his 1960 Harlem Street Singer album. Uh, it's been covered uh, a number of times by the dead, uh, Bob Dylan, Hot Tuna, other bands from that era, meaning the late 60s, uh, early 70s. These were uh, uh, very popular type of tunes for all of these uh, uh, psychedelic bands to kind of latch on to and you know really make hay with and this was a great one um and the dead loved playing it it was very much a part of the uh primal dead era and uh from the 1969 Fillmore west box set has a couple of great great versions on it uh, other releases uh, by the dead um uh from the late 1960s have some great versions of it uh it, it kind of went away for a while it came back uh, I want to say in 90 or 91, I know they played it at Deer Creek and uh, it made some other surprise appearances along the way. Unfortunately, I never got to hear it. And uh, I'm always a little bit bummed by that because I think it's just a great tune. It's very soulful. Uh, Jerry really has, uh, plays it very, very well. And, you know, when, when his voice was working, um, you know, there was kind of like a special feeling that came from it uh, while he was singing it. So certainly a tune that... Um, uh, you know, old timey, you know, traditional deadheads really love, but also a tune that, you know, hopefully more of the newcomers uh, to the world of the Grateful Dead uh, can get behind. And then as they do get behind, make it part of their uh, 
uh, their their education, learning more about music. And if it takes you to the Reverend uh, Gary Davis, all the better for you, because there's a number of great uh, tunes and music out there uh, that he had his hand in creating, and all of us are a lot better for it. And anytime, you know, the Grateful Dead covers one of your songs, that's a pretty damn good sign uh, that you've made it. So uh, not that you need the Grateful Dead to uh, affirm you in that regard, uh, but it also doesn't hurt. And they love that song. And they, they, they just played uh, the heck out of it for a while. And like I say, then dropped it for a while and brought it back for a while. And that was always another thing that was always so surprising for me. What was the point of, you know, playing it, not playing it for 10 years, playing it for two months? putting it away for another 10 years or something, but that's just, you know, what they would do with it. And, and, uh, that's what they did with this song. And when, you know, you hear Jerry sing it and he, he's really getting into it and, you know, really appreciates, I think it, it's emotional aspect, uh, it's strong musical aspect. And, and that really comes through there. I, I think in a, in a great way. Now, very interestingly, right out of this. So now we've had a dark star drum space, death don't have no mercy. And, uh, you know, for God's sakes, people could be thinking we're going to get the 11 next. We're going to get Love Light next. We're going to get uh, uh, all sorts of great things next. And in fact, they did. It just wasn't um, some more Grateful Dead at that moment. From the Death Don't Have No Mercy, they go right into uh, another fantastic cover of Traffic's Dear Mr. Fantasy. And uh, right around this time, they had started doing this on the back end of the Dear Mr. Fantasy segueing over into the Hey Jude reprise, uh, not doing the whole song, although once or twice Brent would sneak in the entire song, and it was always fun to hear him do that. Um, but the Hey Jude reprise to Dear Mr. Fantasy uh, was done quite a bit. And then we get to the next song we're going to feature here, um, and, and this is a song uh, that was a little bit of a, a newcomer to Deadheads, um, but I think it's one that, that has been uh, uh, taken in and adopted and the song that you know everybody gets up off, off their uh, up onto their feet and ready to dance uh, when they hear Bobby go into it. Stones, great tune uh, on the In the Dark album in 1987, but they were playing this song uh, as early as 1982. The first time they played it was September 17th. 
1982 in Portland, Maine. Um, I don't think I saw it in 82, but I definitely started seeing it a lot in 1983. Uh, and then from there on, it became a, uh, this was a regular closer throwing stones and did not fade away, um, which could be, uh, you know, a great uh, closer. But if you were in the middle of a show and they had just been pulling out special stuff, there was always a part of you, I think, that said, Maybe they won't play that tonight, but then they would and be like, oh, okay. But then 30 seconds after that, you're into it and you're like, no, this is great. Um, you know, uh, very, very happy with it. And, um, but it's great. It, you know, it, it's so seamlessly, they combine the new and the old, right? They go back and they pull out these old tunes uh, that they were playing back in the 1960s and they, you know, just intersperse them with tunes that they wrote in the late sixties, that they wrote in the seventies, that they wrote in the eighties. And, they all sound great together and the people that are there love all of it uh, and appreciate each one of those different uh, uh, time spans for its own and, and for the music that came out of it and uh, what we all got out of it. And um, when I, when I saw them play St. Stephen in Madison square garden in 1983, uh, they went from St. Stephen into throwing stones and it was the same kind of a thing where we all said, wow, you know, how cool is this? Um, you know, they 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 just took one of their, you know, anchor tunes one of the central tunes of all of grateful deaddom and they're immediately following it up with with one of their newest tunes and it was a very cool experience then too uh and and i think it shows not only their ability but their desire to link up you know the 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 different sides of their of their touring and, and professional careers and uh you know it's their way of kind of saying at least in my view um you know any one of these songs to us is just as special as a uh, as a Saint Stephen, as a Dark Star, as a Death Don't Have No Mercy, and and I think that's one of the things about the Dead that you know they were very happy playing any of their tunes, and you know while I'm sure they were somewhat tuned in maybe to what the Deadheads were looking for and uh, all of that, I you know I think that they were also doing what they wanted to do, and and well they should. Uh, this is their party; they put it together, and so they should very much have the right to kind of pick the uh, the playlist that goes along with it and and how it's all going to sound and. And they do that, uh, and good for them. It's it, it's it's a great way, I think, to see a band is is uh, one that that keeps bringing in new people based on its uh, current musical output, but still maintains its musical base based on the quality and the longevity and the uh, just complete amazing music compositions that are all of this early Grateful Dead music. That, you know, once you've heard it and once it's kind of gotten into your in your soul, there's really no way to get rid of it. And you just kind of write it out for the rest of your life and say, this is pretty cool. And, you know, if you got a joint, you smoke them and you kick back and you have a good time and it works out uh, uh, really, really well for everybody. So um, it's just a great show to to see them going back and forth like this. So, right. So we, we come out of drums with Death Don't Have No Mercy, Dear Mr. Fantasy, uh, the Hey Jude Reprise throwing stones uh, they close out the night on a really fantastic good lovin and good lovin again is another one of those tunes uh, my good buddy alex always says anytime the dead played good lovin everybody goes home with a smile and that's true it's a fun song bobby really enjoys it it's got a great upbeat tune um and and you know you never really saw them struggling through a good lovin uh, when they were playing it they always had the energy and uh that's a great way uh to to play themselves out of the second set 
And uh, right at that point, everybody's sitting around wondering, hmm, what's coming next? Uh, are we done? We got an encore coming up. What could it be? What could it be? Uh, hopefully something great, I'm sure. Um, you know, there's all sorts of thoughts that could be entering people's minds as to what they might be likely uh, to pull out of their hats at this particular point in time. Um, and we will get to that tune in one minute. Um, but suffice it to say uh, that these shows were so great that they're they're part of a two-show box set, an evening uh, with the uh, with the Warlocks. It's a very cool box set that comes in a, uh, a wooden box that looks a lot like a cigar box with a top that, you know, slides off. It's got little grooves on the side, and then they've got however many different CDs make up the the whole the whole set in there and they've got pins and they've got little news articles and they've got all sorts of fun tchotchkes that maybe a lot of people wouldn't care about but the true deadhead nerds just love and can't get enough of and um, you know it just keeps piling up more and more in my what I call my music room in my house where I just keep all my CDs and you know after a while it it it, it almost outgrows itself it's impossible uh, almost to really keep it in a true coherent fashion and instead you just learn where where was the last place I had this disc over here fine boom I got it okay good uh, now I'm ready to rock and roll again so you know again great stuff this week um, lots happening in the marijuana world mostly positive uh, you know always a few things uh, that we see as a pushback but just part of the growing pains you know and we've said it once and we'll say it a thousand times uh, you know if being if if being in industry means uh, going through a lot of these types of headaches and give me the headaches all day long uh, because the industry is so important that it, it really does need to exist. And uh, it will exist because the people who are currently running the industry, I think, are committed and devoted to it and aren't going to be scared off uh, by a more mainstream society uh, trying to throw a variety of hurdles and roadblocks in their way. Um, you know, and once once it's out, it's out. People were smoking marijuana in this country for years and years behind the scenes. Now they're doing it on the front cover. And, um, you know, law enforcement's got to decide how they really want to handle it. And hopefully they're just going to get to the point where they say, oh, the hell with it. Uh, it's just not worth it anymore. Um, you know, people got to smoke and they're going to smoke. And uh, it's silly for us to sit here and try and stop it or, or make too big of a deal out of it. So, you know, with all that being said, another good week for us, because any week that we have legal marijuana, it's a good week. Um, please join us again coming up soon uh, when we will have lots of good people on this show. We're going to have some more topics to cover. I'm going to send you off now with the encore from 10989. It's a beautiful Addicts of My Life, uh, another tune that they just kind of pulled out of thin air that hadn't been played in a long, long time. The harmonizing is beautiful. Uh, the original harmonizing on the American Beauty album, uh, the skills were taught to them by Crosby, Stills, and Nash as kind of a quid pro quo for Jerry playing uh, um, pedal steel on uh, wooden ships and some of their other tunes. Uh, Teach Your Children, actually, I think was the one that he primarily played it on. Um, and they all helped each other out back then. And, and the harmonizing is really beautiful. And even here in 1989, with their older, scratchier voices, uh, they're still able to do it. The crowd appreciates the effort. And uh, a night at Hampton Coliseum seeing the Warlocks uh, becomes a, a rousing success for those that made it. Uh, they got to see a good, solid show. They got to see great breakouts. And uh, they get to go home uh, after a wonderful encore. So enjoy uh, Addicts. We will talk to you next week. Be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodCon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.